Hi, this is State Delegate Mark Corman, and from Wisconsin Avenue and District 16 to Pratt Street in Baltimore to the Boardwalk on the Eastern Shore and everywhere in between, Conduit Street Podcast is the go-to source for news about Maryland politics and policy. Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. And today on the podcast, we're going to talk about two of the hottest topics at the local, state, and federal level. Michael, we're going to get into infrastructure, and then we're going to get into cybersecurity. But Michael, let's jump right into it. Apparently, there is a deal on a significant infrastructure package in the U.S. Senate. And this has been a a priority for years and years under different administrations and different leadership in Congress. But For some reason, it seems like this might be the real deal, at least pieces of a giant infrastructure package proposed by the Biden administration, right? Yeah, it it feels that way. And it's it's kind of weird. You have to, this story, the relevant story today has a tale from years ago, really like the beginning of the last administration. it, It felt like amidst the campaign that, you know, the presidential campaign in 2016, that there seemed to be a lot of political consensus that America needed to make an investment in its infrastructure. And however you define that, which is one of the things I think we could talk about is however exactly you define that term uh, are like, you know, water and sewer systems, but our roads and bridges and airports and transit and like all these different things that Americans, generally speaking, would respond really favorably if you said, is it time to make a commitment to those sorts of things? And uh, it's it's been it's been some time coming, but uh, it seems timely to talk about it. We're we're literally recording the day after we had the the United States Senate rustle up sixty seven votes, and to mm-hmm. get that kind of a supermajority in that deliberative body, uh, you almost need to be voting on whether the sun is going to rise in the east. It seems right. So that in itself, I mean, just enough to start the process to start the debate. Is a, is a major hurdle, and it's one that is significant. I mean, Infrastructure Week, Michael, it started to become its own joke <laughs> right. uh, around D.C. In, in the pundit class there, right? Well, I, I think the reason the reason that became such a joke, and if, if you're not familiar with this sort of running joke in and around people who do federal politics for, for the last five years or so, it's kind of become this, this, this running joke that, as as it seems like the whole political class would follow whatever the bouncing ball was that moment and suddenly everybody's all up in arms about whatever you know immigration one moment and some other thing that's in the headlines and other commenters and so forth kept saying well this has been a really interesting infrastructure week and i i feel like the the joke has always been like America wants you to tackle important stuff like our roads and bridges, like our clean water. Those sorts of things are really important to Americans. And here are our elected representatives. And instead they're bickering over who wore what color suit or who said right. what to whom or things that feel totally ancillary and sideshow and so forth. So infrastructure week was always meant as sort of the pejorative way to say, there they go again, frittering away time and energy on dumb stuff when it was supposed to be time to get to serious things like rebuilding our infrastructure. I, I think there's, there's some important context to that, that sort of, you know, punchline. 
Yeah, it's always amusing. I was always amused by it. But Michael, let's get into infrastructure and what counts as infrastructure. I mean, you, you talked about this a little bit earlier, but it's really important. And I think traditionally we've thought of infrastructure as roads and bridges and you know water treatment plants and, and the like. But what about broadband and what about human infrastructure like free community college and universal pre-K? And that's a big part of this, right? Because what's on the table now are pieces of President Biden's massive proposal back in March, a $2.3 trillion package that's really was sold as the next wave of post-COVID investment and recovery. Yeah, I, I think it's probably fair to say that, that, that I think that big, really broad opening salvo was meant by the administration as the way to start a conversation. And it may very well be uh, that they, they supported all the elements that were in that plan and, and so forth, but it's, it's, a, it's an iterative process. You have to go step by step through a political process. And even if you have the same political party holds a practical or a functioning majority, it you know, holds the White House and holds the Senate and holds the House, you do have to take a look at, okay, what would it take to do all these things and get sign-off from all those levels? And that's that's more complicated than just introducing your proposal. Here's our, here's our press release, here are our summaries and so forth, and it's going to be a bill and so forth. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think it's cynical to look at that and say this was a beginning offer with every intention of this turning into some degree of compromise. You say, we want all 10 things in the hopes that you can end up getting six of them, right? I don't think there's anything unusual or or nefarious about that kind of political strategy is that we want to do all these things and included on that list. I mean, I don't think we want to rehearse sort of chapter mm-hmm. and verse of the the whole plan from back in March, but the $2.3 trillion plan included, you know, changing labor laws and the $15 minimum wage and like a whole wide range of policy issues, as well as just federal spending. Right. So it, it was meant to be investing in lots of different things. And I think, I think on this question of what is infrastructure, um, I, I think it's fair to say it, that plan caught some flack for saying, you know, a $15 minimum wage is infrastructure and all these different mm-hmm. things that, you know, they're important, they're, you know, they're, they're priorities for the new administration, all that's fair. To, to put them under the term infrastructure got some feathers ruffled and that that made this conversation sort of, you know, a, a winding path. It's probably fair to right. say. Right. And so obviously it became clear that that opening salvo was not going to happen. They weren't going to have any bipartisan support. And so really the, the Democrats have been, you know, for months now trying to come up with you know, an agreement within their own party and and how to, you know, maybe define infrastructure and some of the human capital elements that may not be able to be a part of, you know, the more traditional infrastructure elements that apparently we have this agreement on, which would, you know, invest $550 billion with a B. 
in stuff like roads, bridges, broadband, uh, clean water, etc. But you know, so now we have this deal on the table, and as you mentioned, Michael, it, it, it has now cleared a significant hurdle in the U.S. Senate. And I think there was, I mean, through the months of April and May, there was a lot of back and forth with with the Democratic Party leadership in the House and in the White House of saying, what's the right path to try and do this? And is there a way to get, in all candor, to get the votes on the floor of the House, whether that's, you know, through this sort of reconciliation trick, which, you know, th- this is this is beyond our expertise, but there's a procedural um, process mm-hmm. for budget-related topics to come back for a final majority up or down vote in, in the Senate in particular. And that's a way to not trigger the, the traditional filibuster rules where you have to cut off debate and that takes 60 votes. So th- there was a lot of back and forth. And if you've been following the headlines on this through the spring, you know, it, in the month of April and into May, it was not clear at all whether the path forward for a big infrastructure initiative would be a single party path that include, included whatever we can do through 50 or 51 votes, or would they want to turn it into a, a, a program that probably would be narrowed down, but would be done so in a way to bring aboard um, more, more votes from the other side of the aisle, particularly in the U.S. Senate, and what what the changes to the plan would have to be to make that happen. And even as recently as, I don't know, three or four weeks ago, I don't think it was 100% clear to onlookers. You know, when we were at the National Association of Counties Conference a few weeks ago in Prince George's County, this was one of the topics on, you know, on the tongues of speakers and presenters and in the hallway all through that event, I thought. Right, and right. It, was, it wasn't clear at all whether this was going to be it's just going to be Democrats or it's going to be bipartisan. And that means it'll probably be a thinner plan. So this took some time to really come together, I think. Well, at this point, we know where we are. There's a deal on the table. It's a significant infrastructure bill, even though some of the more human components of infrastructure are not in this agreement. This is still a massive investment in our infrastructure, in our roads, in our bridges, in broadband, in transit, in water safety, and quality. So a huge deal. And at this point, the Senate could pass the bill in a traditional sense. It's looking like they could have the votes to do that. They could also do it through reconciliation, as we've mentioned. Either way, it looks like they could be on track to get something done before they head out for recess in August, something that the Senate Majority Leader has continually said he wants to do, then it has to go to the House. There are some hurdles there. I think some contingents on both sides of the aisle have some issues. But bottom line, I think most people agree that if this clears the Senate, it's a really big sign that we'll get a significant infrastructure bill for the first time in a really long time. If you're a Marylander and you're trying to to digest this in some level, and a lot of us who are on the Annapolis beat rather than the D.C. beat, we tend to think in millions rather than billions and trillions, right? I mean, so, yeah, and we, you know, we tend to think of a, a one-year initiative at the, at the Maryland statewide level, like a $50 million program for the state of Maryland is a pretty big deal, right? You know, as a, as a one-year effort or a $50 million right. project. Right. 
So like that's that's a pretty big deal initiative when when you know the governor makes an announcement of doing some broadband stuff and and says this is going to be thirty million dollars. Mm-hmm. That's a move the needle moment. That's a big deal. That's a that's a headline. Um, so one way to look at these numbers that is a really easy rule of thumb for Marylanders is that our state's population is a little north of six million residents. And the American population is a bit over 300. We are reasonably close to 2% of the U.S. population. We're about an average population state nationwide. So we're about 150th of the U.S. population. So when it comes to federal programs, the easy thing to do is every $50 of a federal program translates to one that actually comes to Maryland. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the package that, that has gotten support in the Senate and has momentum to become law through the U.S. Congress and through the White House has, I, I think everybody seems to have settled on the new spending is $550 billion. Right. So, so, so by that rule of thumb, we'd be talking about $11 billion coming to Maryland. That's, that's, that's the, you know, that's the back of the envelope math. That's not because I have a list that came from Senator Cardin's office that has a whole bunch of detail and I've got that out to 11.00. No, it's just like, that's the rule of thumb, but $11 billion, even over five years, if that's 2 billion a year, um, that's, that's big deal. That's, that's big deal money. Even though we've already used words like this is a watered down version of the original proposal. Right. Right. Um, if, if this ends up being federal funds to the tune of $2 billion a year that come to Maryland at the state and local level, we would certainly hope. And it mm-hmm. ends up targeting our roads and bridges. It targets clean water, um, across the state and resilience projects for energy and for climate change, uh, assistance to the airport, um, some some much needed support for transit and for freight right. rail, like all those different things. Like these could be these could be pretty big deal and noticeable things in your community and and for transportation and and for you know our, our energy resilience and so forth. This is. I think this is a big splash, even though the number is smaller than it seemed like earlier in the year. Right. It's certainly a major, major deal for the state, for the the nation, if this does indeed get through. And we know that the National Association of Counties, Michael, is providing the most up-to-date information regularly on their website. So we can always follow along. We'll post all of that information in the show notes, but go to the NACO website for the latest they have. Uh, newest information on the proposal. But Michael, I want to shift now to cybersecurity. Cybersecurity and data protection continue to be top of mind for counties as well as at the the federal and state levels. And it continues to be a problem, right? And the cyber criminals have figured out that local governments make really good targets, particularly for ransomware attacks. And generally, Michael, local governments have a lot of personal information and they also have deep pockets. So these cyber criminals know that if they can lock up systems and and hold them for ransom, they're going to be in a tough spot. So this is an issue that continues to be a very visible one. And there are multiple efforts going on at the federal, state and local levels to try and bolster our cybersecurity efforts and and beat these hackers. I think, uh, unfortunately, I think... You know, states 
cities, counties in general have just become almost the the perfect diet for those the, you know the the evildoers out there who are engaged in this kind these kind of like ransomware attacks and cyber attacks and so forth. It's just it's it's perfect to have an entity out there that provides such widespread service to so many people they provide services that people really count on like the idea of shutting down your city or county government for 3 weeks while you rebuild your database is a really big hardship to a lot of mm-hmm. people if you can't pick up the trash or if you can't you know monitor people's usage of water and other other things like that you know if suddenly you can't function in those ways people really really hate that there's a lot of pressure to get back up and running in a way that's different from, yeah, I don't know, like a bike shop. You know, there's you know somebody who's just in conventional retail. If if they lose some of their customer information, it might make them a little less agile in responding to your needs. But mm-hmm. it's not exactly the same thing as they shut down service. Or if a store closes for a day, it's maybe not the end of the world to the people who'd like to shop there. It's it's just a different level of expectation, and because of that it's extraordinary pressure on governments to say, we have to make this right. And you know, what we know from the, the cyber criminals out there is they want to make it really easy for you to pay up, right? They say, well, you know, we just, just a, for, for 22 Bitcoin, we'll, we'll get you all your data back. We'll make it really easy for you. Just, just work it, work with our, we have customer service people yeah. standing by, right? So they literally have customer service <laughs> people sometimes that are the nicest, I understand, if you get them on the phone. And, you know, yeah, so they'll say, we want 22 Bitcoin. And then at the end of the day, they may say, well, just send us four and, and we'll give you everything back and give you the keys, which you then have to trust that these criminals are going to give you these cyber keys to unlock right. all your data. But that's a separate story. And I think the recommendation always is do not negotiate with terrorists. And, and right. the US government would, would prefer that, that people not pay these ransoms. But this happens in the private sector too. And oftentimes it might not get the press that you know you get with, with state and local government. This is a big issue. And just today, Michael, the governor convened a cybersecurity summit. This is state, federal, private sector, and higher ed institutions all coming together a big round table, and we are getting word that the governor did enact several new policies today, including a partnership with UMBC to start a new program to address state and local cybersecurity issues and a, a cyber rapid response team that could quickly go out and assist state and local agencies that were responding to attacks. Also, a state chief data officer and chief privacy officer uh, to sort of work around and figure out how to best control and maintain all the data that the state agencies have. And so this is a big high profile event, Michael, a lot of people involved here. Also some partnerships with the private sector and with NSA to to try and really, I think, hone in on the resources that we have in Maryland in the private sector. We're known for sort of our tech and data and cyber infrastructure that we have in the private sector here. So we can see the ball starting to roll in terms of what the state understanding that it needs to make sure that its data is secure and that it's it's not vulnerable to cyber attacks. And also we have a, a cyber work group in the General Assembly that we're heavily involved with. And I think that the biggest thing to understand and what you hear from, from the local governments is that there is not a one size fits all solution. And you hear us talk about that a lot, but particularly when it comes to such a vexing and broad issue, I think it's really hard to try and come up with a single solution. So it's good to see that 
these conversations are happening with the governor and, and his summit and then also in the General Assembly. And it's on everybody's radar at this point, too. I, I think it's one of those topics that has been growing in importance as, as, as virtually everything becomes managed through connected databases and the like, right? That, that that's, that's practically speaking the only way to provide these functions. And so more and more information is held in the cloud or in connected databases and things like that. So we, we know that's the case, and it's a bigger issue than it was two years ago and more so than five years ago and way more so than 10 or 20. But I also think that our cyber vulnerabilities are, are, have been brought to the fore by this pandemic as we have right. workers, workers working from remote locations, and some of them picked up a laptop that would have been in their physical you know office workspace and now they're using that same equipment elsewhere but a lot of people are basically now on sort of bring your own device right mm -hmm. i have well i have a computer at home i'll use that to log in and when the, the further away the equipment gets from the centralized staff who want, might be the ones to make sure everybody has upgraded with the latest patches and done the firmware updates and they've gone through the protocols and the training and so forth, the further dispersed all the technology gets, the more vulnerabilities you have in your system. So mm -hmm. while, while we're all learning to be effective and to be accountable while we work remotely, and that, that means you know, governments and the private sector and, and folks like us too, right? We're, we're, we're working through that as well. Um, mm -hmm. It's added in what's probably going to be a permanent level of extra vulnerability. It's, it's tough for the IT team, instead of going door to door down the hallway, to literally go house to house where all the employees have that remote station set up, accessing their database and so forth. Um, that's just an extra task. So um, I, I think this is this is obviously on an uptick as a matter of importance, and that's why everybody is on board here. That's why we've all been part, you know, very very much engaged with the cyber work group that's already been going on. That's why you had all these different stakeholders at the the sort of you know summit setting today. And you have, you know, the governor making announcements like we're going to do these things today, not not propose them for next year, not it'll be in the budget and we hope to get something done, but we'll create this stuff now. Hmm. And like, let's get ahead of this as best we can. It, it's that kind of issue, right? Right. So, I mean, I don't want to have to go knock on Michael's door to make sure you have a password on your network. Because if you don't and you're working from home and you're logged into a server, that's how you, you get penetrated, right? So you're right. Uh, it, it's, it's a conversation. I think that a lot of it is driven by COVID, but there are a number of people, trust me, that have been jumping up and down about this for years. It's good to see that it's getting the attention it deserves. And, you know, also you're talking about the nation's critical infrastructure as well, right? We've seen the attacks on the pipeline software that shut that down. You could have oh, attacks right. on our energy grid. I mean, so, so this is a, a national security issue as well. And we've seen Congress, at least in the House, pass some significant bills over to the Senate, led in, in part by Congressman Ruppersberger, who we've talked about these issues with before. 
But I, I really think that some of these approaches are interesting and they kind of fit the bill for the kind of approaches that I think work best here. And that's basically a, a new grant program that would be administered federally. And essentially to get the money, though, it would be available to state and local governments. But in order to get the money, you'd have to sort of present a cybersecurity plan and then a plan right. on how you would use the money to, to upgrade your system. So really sort of a carrot approach. And I think that's another example of Congress realizing that it, it's really, really hard to, to try and, uh, and tell people exactly how to solve this issue. So instead, we'll, we'll offer you a carrot and we want to see how you're going to plan to do this at the local level that works best for you and your constituents to keep everybody's data safe and to keep your network safe because it's not a one size fits all. So I like the carrot approach. And again, I think it's having those resources available makes all the difference in the world. Well, I, I think it, it's no surprise that that would be the framework that would appeal to someone like Congressman Rupersberger. He's got a background in local government and kind of understands that that's a productive relationship. You create the incentive and say, you know, here, like you use carrots. That's exactly right. You know, so so here's the here's the program. But we want you to develop a good plan as part of being part of a program, as opposed to here's the money, let's see what happens. I think there's there's sense to that, uh, particularly if your motivation here is like, we want to get everybody on board with best practices and do the smart stuff. So get your house in order. Okay, good. Right. So I think I think that framework is is a useful one for a topic like this in particular. It's tough getting in the forecasting game of what will happen through the U.S. Congress, and we've already had some comments about that already. So we'll mm -hmm. see what happens with programs like these as they move over to the, to the U.S. Senate, and if it can become you know, some part of the next big deal that becomes a, a compromise among everyone. But there, there's room for optimism that th th this is another topic, like going back to we started by saying infrastructure writ large mm -hmm. is one of those, gee, Americans are really behind it. Well, I bet you if if one of our friends in public polling, like Dr. Cromer, were to ask, you know, Marylanders or Americans or whomever, do you think we should be committing more resources to having good plans in place and good systems in place to defend against cyber attacks? Who, who's going to say no to that, right? That's that's a it's a pretty smart use of resources, even if it's frustrating that that's a, as big of a problem as it is. It's still a smart thing to be thinking about. And I hate to make this like a bottom line thing, but your plans for cybersecurity are increasingly just part of your resilience plan overall. Mm -hmm. When mm -hmm. your, your, your county is, is going to go up and get a bond rating analysis from Standard and Poor's and so forth, you go up to, you know, to the bond houses and you want to get graded for your ability to pay back bondholders, well, you know, your your financial plan is part of it, but also your resilience plan is part of it as well. This has to be part of that mix as well. It's just, it's a prudent thing to do no matter what business you're in, including governance. What's your cybersecurity plan? What are your vulnerabilities? What is your plan to patch those vulnerabilities? All of that's on the table because this is such a big money business now, cyber criminals are, are yeah. cashing in on billions of dollars, right? So it's got to be part of the conversation. And all of this, Michael, infrastructure and broadband and cybersecurity is going to be on display at the Mako Tech Expo, part of our summer conference. That's going to be Wednesday, August 18th. Of course, the summer conference itself runs 18th through the 21st in Ocean City at the Roland Powell Convention Center, Michael. But the Tech Expo on Wednesday, I mean, we've it's grown so much 
over the last few years. It's a, it's a trade expo. And then the amount of content that we've added is really remarkable. And it, it touches on all the themes today when it comes to tech and cyber and broadband. And, and we, you know, the, the list of speakers is, is amazing. So I'm really excited yeah. about it. Yeah, it's a it's an obvious read the room opportunity for us. We put our toe in the pool. It's been five or six years now. We've been doing a technology focus on the first day of the conference, and it has grown each year. It's bigger. It's better. We know we know to fold in content that will appeal to the people who who want to be there to talk to tech vendors. They want to be talking about solutions and so forth. These are the kind of topics that you also want to have in the room as a discussion, as a panel presentation, or hear about the best practices at every level. So I think, I think we are, we're doing this correctly and the returns show it. This has gone from being a fledgling effort several years ago to really a must do part of the conference. We're really happy about that. Yep. Also some really exciting hands-on and live demonstrations. So you will not want to miss that. Make sure you're registered and you're down there in Ocean City and be there on Wednesday for the Tech Expo. It's, it's awesome. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. That way, all of these episodes are sent directly to the device of your choice. You can also follow along on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and then, of course, our Conduit Street blog. But for Michael Sanderson, this is Kevin Canale signing off, and we will talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.